Part Two, Chapter Ten of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Prince Andrei put up at Brunn, at the residence of his friend, the diplomat Bilibin. Ah, my dear prince, no one could be more welcome," said Bilibin, coming down to greet him. Franz, take the prince's luggage into my sleeping room," he added turning to the valet who had admitted the visitor. "'So you're bringing news of a victory. Excellent. But I'm under the weather, as you can see.' Prince André, having washed and changed his dress, joined the diplomat in his luxurious study, and sat down to the dinner which had been prepared for him. Bilibin drew up comfortably before the fire. After his hurried journey, and indeed after this whole campaign, during which he had been deprived of all the comforts and elegancies of life, Prince Andrei experienced a pleasant feeling of repose amid these luxurious conditions of existence, to which he had been accustomed since childhood. Moreover, it was pleasant after his reception by the Austrians to talk, not indeed in Russian, for they spoke in French, but with a Russian, who, as he supposed, shared the general Russian aversion, now felt with especial keenness, for the Austrians. Bilibin was a man of thirty-five, unmarried, and belonging to the same set as Prince André. They had been acquaintances long before Petersburg, and had become more intimate during Prince André's last visit to Vienna, in company with Kutuzov. Just as Prince André was a young man who promised to make a brilliant career in the military profession, so Bilibin, with even greater probability, was on the road to success in diplomacy. He was still a young man, but he was not a young diplomat, since he had begun his career at the age of sixteen, had been in Paris and in Copenhagen, and now held a very responsible post in Vienna. Both the Chancellor and the Russian ambassador at the court of Vienna knew him and prized him highly. He was not one of those diplomats who are considered to be very good, because they have merely negative qualities, do nothing but their perfunctory duties, and are able to speak French. He was rather one of those who work con amour, and with intelligence. Notwithstanding his natural indolence, he sometimes spent the whole night at his writing-table. He put in good work, no matter what the nature of the work in hand. It was the question, how, not the question, why, that interested him. It was a matter of indifference to him what the diplomatic business was about, but he took the greatest satisfaction in artistically, accurately, and elegantly composing circulars, memorials, or reports. Bilibin's services were prized, not only because of his skill in inditing letters, but still more because of his faculty for shining in society and carrying on conversation in the highest spheres. Bilibin liked to talk just as he liked to work, but it was essential that the topic should let him display his delicately polished wit. In society he was constantly on the watch for a chance to say something remarkable, and he never mingled in conversation except under such conditions. His talk was plentifully begemmed with keen and polished phrases, original with himself, and yet having an interest for all. These phrases were prepared in Bilibin's internal laboratory, as a sort of portable property, which even the dullest members of society might easily remember and carry from party to party. And, in fact, Bilibin's witticisms made the rounds of Viennese drawing-rooms. Les mots de Bilibin. 
se copoten dans le salon de Vienne, and had often had an effect on so-called important events. His thin, weary-looking sallow face was covered with deep wrinkles, which always seemed clean and parboiled, like the ends of the fingers after a bath. The motions of these wrinkles constituted the principal play of his physiognomy. Now, it was his forehead that was furrowed with broad lines, and his eyebrows were lifted high, again his brows were contracted and deep lines marked his cheeks. His deep-set little eyes looked always frank and cheerful. "'Now, then, tell us your exploits,' said he. Bolkonsky, in the most modest manner, without once referencing to himself, told him of the combat and of the minister's behaviour. "'They received me and the news that I brought, like a dog in the game of ninepins,' said he, in conclusion. Bilibin smiled, and the wrinkles in his face relaxed. "'However, mon cher,' said he, "'in spite of the high esteem which I profess for the orthodox Russian army, I confess that your victory is not one of the most victorious.' Thus he went on, and all the time speaking in French, and introducing Russian words only when he wished to give them a scornful emphasis. It was this way, wasn't it? You fell with all your overwhelming numbers upon that unhappy Montier, and yet Montier slipped between your hands. Where was the victory in that? Well, speaking seriously, replied Prince Andrei, we can at least say without boasting that it was rather better than Olm. Why didn't you take one, at least one marshal prisoner? Because things aren't always done as they are forecast, nor can they be arranged with all the regularity of a parade. We expected, as I told you, to turn their flank at seven o'clock in the morning, and we did not succeed till five in the evening. Why didn't you succeed by seven in the morning? You ought to have outflanked them by seven in the morning, said Bilibin, smiling. You ought to have done it at seven in the morning. Why didn't you suggest to Bonaparte, through diplomatic agency, that he'd better abandon Genoa? asked Prince Andre in the same tone. I know, interrupted Bilibin. As you sit on your sofa before the fire, you think that it is very easy to capture marshals. It is, indeed. But why didn't you capture him? And don't be surprised that neither the Minister of War, nor his most august majesty, my Emperor, nor King Franz, is very grateful for your victory and I myself, the unfortunate secretary of the Russian legation, feel no special impulse to express my delight by giving my Franz a tailor and letting him take his Liebchen for a walk on the Prater. To be sure, there's no Prater here. He looked straight at Prince André, and suddenly smoothed out the wrinkled skin upon his forehead. Now, my dear, it is my turn to ask you why, said Belkonsky. I assure you, I cannot understand— Perhaps there are diplomatic subtleties here that are above my feeble mind, but I cannot understand. Mac has destroyed a whole army. The Archduke Ferdinand and the Archduke Karl are giving no signs of life and are making one blunder after another. Finally, Kutuzov alone really gains a victory, destroys the spell of the French, la Chambre de Francais, and the Minister of War isn't interested enough to inquire after the details. That is the very reason, my dear. Voyez-vous, mon cher. Hurrah for the Tsar, for Russia, the faith. Tous ces belles et bon. All that's very well and good, but what do we, I mean the Austrian court, care for your victories? Only bring them your fine news about a victory won by the Archduke Karl or Ferdinand, 
un archiduc voulotre one is as good as another as you well know a victory even though it were only over a squad of bonaparte's firemen and that would be another thing we should proclaim it with the thunder of cannon but this as a matter of course can only vex us the archduke karl is nothing the archduke ferdinand covers himself with disgrace you desert vienna you no longer defend it as though you said god is with us may god be with you and your capital one general whom we all loved schmidt you allowed to be killed by a bullet and you congratulate us on the victory confess that nothing could be imagined more exasperating than this news which you bring c'est comme un fait exprès comme un fait exprès moreover even if you had won the most brilliant victory even if the archduke karl should what change would that make in the course of events it's too late now for vienna has been occupied by the french army what occupied vienna occupied not only occupied but bonaparte is at schonbrunn and the count our dear friend count verbna has gone there to him for orders bolkonsky after his fatigue and the impressions of his journey and his reception and especially since his dinner felt that he did not grasp the full meaning of the words which he heard this morning count lichtenfels was here continued bilibin and showed me a letter containing a circumstantial account of the parade of the french in vienna les princes mouraient et tous les tremblements you can see that your victory is not such an immense delight and you can hardly be regarded as our saviors truly as far as i am concerned it is a matter of indifference absolute indifference said prince andrei beginning to comprehend that his tidings about the engagement at krems was of really little importance compared with such an event as the occupation of the austrian capital how came vienna to be occupied how about the bridge and that famous tete de pont and prince ausberg it was reported among us that prince ausberg was defending vienna said he prince ausberg is on this side on our side of the danube and will defend us defend us very wretchedly i think but still he will defend us and vienna is on the other side no the bridge is not taken yet and i hope it will not be it has been mined and the order is to blow it up if it were not for that we should have been long ago in the mountains of bohemia and you and your army would have spent a wretched quarter of an hour between two fires but still this does not mean that the campaign is at an end does it asked prince andrei well it's my impression that it is and so think the bigwigs here but they dare not say so what i said at the beginning of the campaign will come true that your skirmish near durstein will not settle the affair nor gunpowder in any case but those who invented it said bilibin repeating one of his malts while he puckered his forehead and paused a moment the question simply depends on this what is to be the outcome of the berlin meeting of the emperor with the prussian king if prussia joins the alliance on force allemand l'autriche austria's hand is forced and there will be war but if not then all they have to do is arrange for the preliminaries of a second campo formio but what an extraordinary genius suddenly cried prince andrei doubling his small fist and pounding the table with it and what luck that man has who bonaparte queried bilibin knitting his brow and thereby signifying that he was going to get off a witticism 
Buonaparte, he repeated, laying a special emphasis on the U. I certainly think that now, when he is laying down the laws for Austria from Schoenburn, he must be spared that U. Il fait le faire gros de lui. I am firmly resolved to make the innovation, and I shall call him Bonaparte, tout court. No, but joking aside, said Prince André, is it possible that you think the campaign is finished? This is what I think. Austria has been made a fool of, and she is not used to that, and she will take her revenge. And she has been made a fool of because, in the first place, her provinces have been pillaged. It is said the Orthodox, et terrible pour le pillage, her army is beaten, her capital is taken, and all this pour les bourgeois of the king of Sardinia. And in the second place, entre nous, mon cher, I suspect that we are being duped. I suspect dealings with France, and a project of peace, a secret peace, separately concluded. That cannot be, said Prince André. That would be too base. Qui vivra verre, you will see, said Bilibin, scowling this time in a way that signified that the conversation was at an end. When Prince André went to the chamber that had been prepared for him, and stretched himself between clean sheets on a soft down mattress, and on warm perfumed pillows, he began to feel that the battle, the report of which he had brought, was far, far away. The Prussian alliance, the treachery of Austria, Bonaparte's new triumph, the parade and levy, and his reception by Emperor Franz the next day, filled his mind. He closed his eyes, but instantly his ears were deafened by the cannonading, the musketry, the rumble of the carriage wheels, and now once more the musketeers came marching in scattered lines down the hillside, and the Frenchmen were firing, and he felt how his heart thrilled, and he galloped on ahead, with Schmidt at his side, and the bullets whistled merrily around him, and he experienced such a feeling of intensified delight in life as he had not felt since childhood. He awoke with a start. Yes, it was all so, said he, smiling to himself, a happy childlike smile, and he fell asleep with the sound sleep of youth. End of chapter 10